Well, good morning, friends. Uh, for those of you who are here for the first time, uh, let me add to Bill's uh, welcome. Uh, whoever you are, whether you're a church member here or not, whether you are even a Christian here or not, uh, we are genuinely delighted that you are here uh, with us. We hope and pray that you feel uh, very welcome indeed. Indeed, if you are visiting, let me just uh, set the scene and explain to you that we are uh, studying the book of Philippians as a church together. Uh, Philippians is found in the New Testament. It is a book written after Jesus. It is a book found, uh, therefore, towards the back of a Bible. And it is a book which, uh, whether you are new here or not, I would love you to turn to uh, right now. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have a clue where the book of Philippians is, don't worry, please just grab a pew Bible in front of you and turn with me to page 921. And as you turn there, uh, let me tell you that this book uh, called Philippians is called Philippians because it is an ancient letter written to a church in the city of Philippi. Now, if you went to Philippi today, you might meet uh, the odd archaeologist. Uh, for most archaeologists, they're rather odd, aren't they? Uh, but if you went there in the first century, you would meet thousands of ordinary people because Philippi was a major Roman colony. The city was originally named after, after King Philip, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And yet in this key European city, first century Greek history tells us that many pagan god worshippers came to grasp that Jesus was God. For unlike their invented gods, Jesus was real. He really lived and he really died. Indeed, Jesus died for all human selfishness as he preached to bring God, people back to their good creator. And Jesus rose again physically from the dead, proving he was God who had come to bring eternal life. And the first person to tell these Philippians that was a man who had seen Jesus himself, a leading scholar of the day named Paul, and the first Philippian to believe that, in fact, the first European convert to Christianity was a Philippian woman named Lydia. And after her conversion, the church at Philippi just took off. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 16. But if we were to fast forward about 12, 13 years from that Philippian church's beginning, and if we move from uh, Eastern Europe and, and Greece into Western Europe and Italy, somewhere... In the pitch darkness, we would have found this Philippian church's aging first pastor, Paul, in a miserable Roman prison cell. And yet if we were to venture down into that dungeon, and if we were to meet this incarcerated old man sat all alone in the miserable darkness, we would not have met a miserable old man at all, but rather a man full of joy. An old man whose smile constantly lit up his, his dark prison cell because he was in the middle of penning a letter to his dear old church, all the saints at Philippi, chapter 1, verse 1. For as you can see, and hopefully you found page 921 by now, Paul's filled with joy because these Philippians were still partners in the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul prays with a joy, verse 4, when he remembers them. And he tells him to rejoice in his situation too because his imprisonment, verse 12, has meant many Roman soldiers coming to know the Lord. 
Indeed, Paul is glad whenever he has opportunity to follow Christ in life or death, verse 20. And so, as we saw last week, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul's joy will be complete if they humbly follow Jesus too. But what does that mean practically? What were these Philippians to do? Well, today we're told. And so in honor of God's word, uh, let us stand to hear Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Please be seated. It was a beautiful Sunday morning in 1997. Uh, the August sun was shining as I parked my bike around the back of the shop. I was a 14-year-old paperboy. There was a time without smartphone updates and, and rolling news, and I, I love to be one of the first in to read the morning headlines. Except that Sunday morning, there were multiple front-page headlines and, and seemingly multiple editions of each newspaper. I walked up to the first edition, and I remember reading the shocking headline on the 3 a.m. edition of the Daily Mirror, Princess in Horror Car Crash. I read on, and then I lifted up the next newspaper batch, and the, and the 4 a.m. edition of the Daily Mail shockingly read, Tragedy for Princess Die as Boyfriend is Killed. And as I read on, the shock only deepened. For underneath that, the headline on the 6 a.m. copy of the Daily Express read, Diana is dead. Shocking headline one, shocking headline two, shocking headline three, a joyful Sunday morning of light reading was shattered by a shock to the system. Would the British system ever be the same again? My question, friends, is you got up to read this Sunday morning. I wonder if you noticed the shocking headlines today in this seemingly joyful, sunny letter of Paul's. Because for me, here in our reading this morning, there are three similarly surprising headlines, three headlines that I think cause a shock to our system. Not a shock to the system of modern British monarchy, but a shock to the system of much modern Christianity. Three shocking headlines. I wonder if you noticed them. If you didn't, let me give you the first. Shocking headline one, point one. Christian salvation equals hard work that is fear-induced. Christian salvation equals hard work that is fear-induced. 
induced. Let me read where I get that from. For truly it is a shock to the system for many. Middle of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Friends, what on earth is going on here? At first headline glance, it would appear perhaps that Paul is indeed rewriting the whole system of Christianity. After all, this is the same Paul who, who wrote in, in, the, in, in, in Galatians. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works. How then could Paul say to this church in Philippi, work out your own salvation? Is Christian salvation actually something that you have to, have to work out, like a math problem? Is Christian salvation actually something all about your exertion, like, like a workout at the gym? Well, no. Christian salvation is not like that at all. Christian salvation is not something you attain because you are clever enough as clever as a math student who can solve any problem, or indeed because you are enthusiastic enough, as enthusiastic as the gym member who works out daily. Indeed, let me be very clear, lest anyone misreads Paul's headline here. Christian salvation is not acquired by our efforts, but rather by our admission that we are exhausted, exhausted by sin in our world, Exhausted by sin in the people that we know and love, and, and most of all, exhausted by sin in our very own hearts, and that we are drowning as a result. It is an exhaustion that is coupled with a new declaration that Jesus is actually the captain of our souls, and we are not, and that wonderfully he came to die to rescue us for all that sin in our hearts, that we may be brought back to a good God who will judge us at the end. And yet, though that is salvation at its very root, Christian salvation is far greater in its scope and its application than just an exhaustion and a one-time declaration. For Christian salvation, as Paul says here to these believers, naturally and quite obviously equals, result in, produce hard work. Indeed, let me illustrate this salvation by explaining, uh, let me illustrate rather this salvation by explaining what salvation may have brought to mind for many of these ancient Greeks to whom Paul wrote. For in ancient Greece, much warfare was naval. Athenians and Spartans regularly fought in, in famous battles in the Mediterranean Sea, and they fought in these huge boats called triremes, which had a large sail and, and three banks of oar. And in this ancient warfare, essentially what each Greek navy would try to do was to sail and to row these giant triremes as fast as they could into one another. And finally, one trireme would, would ram into another, and the exhausted rowers in the destroyed boat would have been left to drown. But sometimes, very occasionally, there are records of sailors who were saved. For a Greek sailor who was drowning could 
have been saved by the captain of another trireme. The sailor would have been hoisted out of the water, hoisted out of those, that, that, that sea of death. And the sailor would have undoubtedly stood in great fear and great trembling before this merciful captain who he had just been fighting against. And this sailor would have instantly done what? To safeguard his salvation and to sanction his way back to safety and land again. Well, we don't have any records of what actually happened. But if I were that ancient Greek sailor, I would have picked up an oar and rowed harder than ever before. And accordingly, when I got back to land, when would I have said that I was saved? Was it the moment when I, when I heard that my ship was hit? Was it the moment when, when I cried for help as I drowned? Certainly, it was the moment when I was hoisted up out of the dark waters by that merciful captain. But also, my salvation story was evidenced and, and equated with that the whole time I rode home rowing as hard as I could for land out of a growing recognition of my frailty and the grave danger of that dark sea and how close I came to death and ultimately out of a loyal dread of failing to work hard for my captain who had graciously taken me aboard his ship. Friends, can you see how Paul describes salvation here as he addresses not unbelievers here, but mature Christians in Philippi, those people who were already on board? And therefore, friends, can you see how important it is for us to describe what salvation looks like carefully, depending on whether we are talking to Christians or, or, or non-Christians? For in the same way that it would be awful to call out to a drowning enemy sailor, row harder, work out your salvation, when he had no oar, no boat, no buoyancy, and no desire for rescue. So it would be equally awful not to call out to the rescued sailor, row hard, work out your salvation, when he or she had been rescued by an awesome captain. Friends, it sounds very obvious, doesn't it? And yet how much of modern Christianity is built on an uncareful system often where, where, where the weary and the drowning unbeliever hears the call to, to row harder when they don't have any oars. Whilst the believer who says that they're on board is often told, have a rest now. Sleep in the sunshine until you arrive at port. The captain doesn't mind you going off for a swim. You can even disobey his orders if you like, for he is a gracious and a very easygoing captain, one not to be feared, let go and let God. Friends, that may be the system of salvation we have built in many modern churches, but that is a far cry from Christian salvation. For headline one from Paul is that salvation means hard work that, that is fear-induced that the really saved really work and work, verse 12, whether other shipmates are watching us or not. For true Christian salvation equals an active work, 
an ongoing passion to keep rowing, a growing desire to obey all the commands of our captain, and working hard because there is a deep sensitivity to the frightening nature of our rescue and the frightening na nature of our rescuer. The pastor Kevin DeYoung, in his excellent book, The Hole in Our Holiness, puts it like this. Christians work. They work to kill sin, and they work to live in the Spirit. They have rest in the gospel, but never rest in the battle against the flesh and the devil. The child of God has two great marks about him. He is known for his inner warfare and his inner peace. As gospel Christians, we should not be afraid of working. When it comes to our sanctification, we don't just look to the Lord. We don't just get gripped by the gospel. We also work hard to be holy. And my Christian friends, if you're finding that hard right now, maybe bruised by these tough words, because you know that you're not obeying, your merciful captain right now, perhaps struggling to obey when people aren't watching, perhaps struggling to follow him in one particular area, perhaps finding rowing against the world really tough right now. Friends, if that's you this morning, then let me encourage you to dwell this week on verse 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, verse 13, for it is God who works in you. Friends, please know and please be heartened by the fact that when it comes to obedience, that as we work, God works. That when we pick up those oars of holiness with, with, with fear and trembling for our captain, with a deep determination to row for home, that something not only natural inside us happens, but something supernatural. To push the illustration of the Greek trireme, when the rowers rowed hard, the ship would move forward, but also as it did, as they built up speed, so these huge ships would also be able to open up that great sail and catch warm, prevailing Mediterranean winds which would ultimately carry them home. My friends, if you're anything like me, there will be times when you are tired of rowing and at those times, we should not put down the oars. But at those times, as we row on with weary bodies, we may look up and see that, that billowing sail and remember that there is one who never grows weary. Indeed, one who is tirelessly active in propelling us towards holiness and to the shores of safety and salvation in full. Christian salvation is hard work that is fear-induced, but as Paul has already headlined in chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Well, that is shocking headline number one, the reminder that our salvation equals hard work. But as we continue on in our text, we quickly see a second headline which provides perhaps an even greater shock to our Christian system. For in verse 14, we discover what that hard work is. 
Uh, we know that we are metaphorically to obey our captain with fear and trembling and to row hard as the Holy Spirit carries us home. But what is that hard work to look like for us, for the Philippians, in everyday reality? What does it mean doing? What does it mean not doing? Well, friends, what first comes into your mind when you think about working hard for Jesus? What do you think about when it comes to obedience? What do you think about not doing? Well, in America in 2020, I'd be surprised if many of us here didn't equate Christian hard work with social action or conservative morality, not dressing inappropriately, maybe, not being greedy, but but giving to the poor, not getting drunk at the bar, not cussing at the DMV. But in contrast, what does Paul reveal as the very first sign of Christian obedience? Well, what does this really long kind of 18-verse run-up all the way from chapter 1, verse 27, about living a life worthy for Christ mean not doing? Well, today we hit the climax. What are these Philippians to ensure? Verse 14, drumroll, do all things without grumbling or disputing. As the crescendo to having the same mindset as Jesus Christ, if we're honest, the kind of the shortness and the substance of verse 14, it falls rather flat, doesn't it? And yet that is the second headline that Paul leads with. Shocking headline number two, Christian hard work equals harmony that is grumbling free. Christian hard work equals harmony that is grumbling free. What does the hardworking Christian look like? Well, big picture, it is he or she who works for harmony amongst Christ's ship. It is not people rowing frantically in their own boat. It is not people primarily rowing off by themselves on short-term mission projects or, or with their own little ministry group. It is people who are rowing together in time as one. For as Paul has said to this local church in chapter 1, verse 27, a life worthy of the gospel is one where Christians stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith. And again, the priority of unity is evidenced again here. Verse 16, they are to hold fast to the word together. Verse 15, they are to live as children in one family and not just as innocent individuals. Friends, harmony is the very heartbeat of this letter to a local church. In the first half of the letter, harmony is rejoiced in. As Paul speaks of his gospel partnership with this Philippian church, and in the second half, a lack of harmony is rebuked, as Paul tells two disputing members to be of the same mind in the Lord. For Paul knows that our harmony around the gospel pictures our health as a local church. Accordingly, obedient children work their very hardest not to spend their time disputing with their brothers and sisters in the same gospel family. Now, that's not to say that, that Christians shrug their shoulders about important matters and, and key doctrines, but rather they do their best to discuss in private 
and in such a way that minimizes quarrels. And friends, you know, there was a time when Christians sought as best they could to do just that, and even over important matters of the faith. On the 20th of December, 1748, in Hinksworth in England, uh, just a few miles down the road from where my parents live, the esteemed young English preacher Charles Spurgeon met the renowned English evangelist John Wesley. And there, these two gospel men quietly discussed a key matter of doctrine in private. The topic of a conversation was over an important issue which had caused much gospel division in England. The matter was over God's sovereignty in salvation. And there we are told how these two men conducted themselves in their discussion. Their conversation went like this. Sir, I, Simeon, understand that you, Wesley, are called an Arminian, and I have sometimes been called a Calvinist, and therefore I suppose we are to draw daggers. But before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions, not from impertinent curiosity, but for real instruction. Sir, do you feel yourself to be depraved, so depraved that you'd have never thought of turning to God if God had not first put that into your heart? Yes, I do indeed, replied Wesley. And do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by, by anything that you do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Yes, solely through Christ, said Wesley. But, sir, supposing that you were first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? No, I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Sir, are you then upheld every hour and every moment by God as much as an infant in its mother's arms? Yes, altogether. And, sir, is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you unto his heavenly kingdom? Yes, I have no hope but in him. Then, Mr. Wesley, sir, with your leave, I will put up my dagger again, for this is all my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. And therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. Friends, what a shock to the system compared to so much and so many Christian conversations today. For sadly, in 2021, many, many leaders seem to spend more time not, not rowing together, but rowing together using their oars to fight one another and discouraging all the new sailors aboard. How sad our merciful captain must be as he reads many log entries of our social media posts. Dear children, do all things without disputing. But if we look carefully, it is not only without disputing because did you notice at the start of verse 14, Paul says that there is a more subtle way of undermining Christian harmony. 
For gospel harmony is not only drowned out by the obvious and loud sounds of Christians clashing together on social media, but also gospel harmony is often drowned out by the far more subtle and constant sound of Christians grumbling in private. Now, for many of us, I guess, in our minds, grumbling doesn't seem that big a deal at all. Loudly disputing, fair enough, we think it's, that's a big deal. Uh, Christians should be dispute-free. But free from all grumbling? Surely there's nothing wrong with me moaning with my friends about another church member. Surely it's okay to vent about the lame sermon or, or the lateness of the students or the loudness of the babies or to critique leaders when they overlook me, or to grouse about how the church budget is spent, or to complain about all the pastoral support is, is focused on people who are not like me. Friends, if we know God's word well, we should know that from passages like Exodus 16 to passages like this, grumbling is never a small thing. For grumbling not only makes God out to be a miser, as its monotonous hum in our lives drowns out the regular chimes of God's goodness to us each day, but the sound of constant grumbling prevents us from hearing a gospel harmony of God's people holding out God's word together. No wonder the Puritan minister Thomas Watson described grumbling in the local church as the devil's music. Friends, how are we to work hard in holiness? The very first thing, strikingly, that Paul says, it is not to be critical as you row together. Yes, God's people may, may, may groan against the sea at times, that the waves of life break onto our boat often, and it is right to share the strain with fellow sailors. And scandals and abuse must never be hidden. But we must see that the danger here of being marked by the sound of bickering and discontentment with all those with whom we sail. And so, my friends, let me ask you, as I very much ask myself, how are you perceived by your church? Would people consider you a really encouraging sailor who is always working their, their absolute hardest to ensure that their, their shipmates are all rowing together in time? Or are you perceived as one who walks haughtily down the center of the boat, tutting and fussing and critiquing others' rowing technique? Friends, it is hard work. But are you working hard? When you turn off Zoom or, or get back in the car in a few minutes' time, what will be the first thing you say? Not many decent hymns today, were there? Preacher went past 11.30 again. Honestly, how cold was it in the foyer? All my friends, will you grow, row against that critical spirit, working as hard as you can as God works in you to promote harmony in this place? Christian salvation equals hard work, that is fear-induced. Christian hard work equals harmony that is grumbling-free. And yet there is a final headline here. 
but maybe for you turns out to be the most shocking headline of all, for in these final few verses, Paul describes the results of Christian hard work, and specifically this Christian harmony. Shocking headline number three, and with this we shall close. Christian harmony equals hope that is seen by those in the dark. Christian harmony equals hope that is seen by those in the dark. In verses 15 to 18, we come to realize that this this hard work towards harmony has some, some rather shocking effects upon those in the dark. For first of all, as we've already seen in this letter, there's this fellowship and unity and, and partnership in the gospel causes Paul, imprisoned in the darkness, to be lit up with great joy. And again, here at the end of this section, as Paul ponders their, their, their own unity together and their lack of grumbling, as they hold fast to the word together with a blamelessness and a, and a lack of disputing, like a proud parent, who sees his children playing together nicely, Paul's smile no doubt lights up that dark prison cell. For it is a joyful pride in their harmony together that that quickly moves Paul to consider his hope. Uh, Middle of verse 16. Do, Do look with me. Do all this, verse 16, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain, or labor in vain. Friends, let me be very candid for a second. You have no idea what joy it brings to pastors when they see their congregation working hard to be harmonious. Or friends, in dark days, in a time where dark division is is far too common, and in a job where there are few tangible results, Your unity brings such hope that one day our work will be seen as something not in vain. Indeed, when Matt and I and and the other elders see so many of you in this new season of our church's life uh, working so very hard to be patient and, and, and humble with one another as you're doing, rowing together as one today, it brings such hope of being able to be proud on that final day. Christian harmony equals hope that is seen by those in the dark. However, there is, there is more encouragement here to unity. For did you notice at the end of verse 15 that Christian harmony not, not only gives hope to church leaders in the dark, but, but also, even more wonderfully, gives hope to a world that is in utter darkness. Verse 14 again, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights, literally stars in the world. One of the things that has brought Sarah and I great joy in, in moving to Nashville over the summer it is our kids being able to see the stars under the polluted and cloudy skies of London. Uh, my kids occasionally used to, to say to me at night, Hey, Dad, I can see the star. At which point I'd normally say, You know, there's, there's more than one, don't you? Or more commonly, No, that's another A380 landing at Heathrow. 
But here, uh, particularly if you drive out a few miles, you get the joy of, of seeing so many stars shining out against the dark background of the night sky. And as you stare into space, it, it often looks so bleak, doesn't it? Certainly to me. And yet God gave lights to pierce the darkness. And that, that, that is the metaphor that Paul employs here to speak of what happens when Christians work hard to, to live together in harmony in a crooked and twisted world. Friends, I promise you that there is a strikingness. There is a beauty to Christian unity and harmony that draws in those who have only seen darkness in their lives. For when Christians live together blamelessly, when Christians speak out, not against each other, but speak out the gospel that unites them, an arguing and complaining generation such as ours stands in awe and gasps as one who stands before the Milky Way. Friends at Edgefield Church, not only are we to work hard together for harmony, to prove our salvation to ourselves, to prove that we are the, the children of God, verse 14, to prove to ourselves that we are still obedient to our captain. And not only are we to work hard together for harmony, to bring joy and gladness to our church leaders so that they may know that they have not ran or worked in vain, verse 16, as they help to steer us home together. But we are to work hard together for harmony because it brings hope to the world, to a world that is so dark, for our harmony is based on nothing less than the very real hope found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For friends, that is the only reason you are in this boat with this motley crew, isn't it? Jesus saved you. And so now we are to row hard that we may be like stars, gospel lights that guide other ships home and bring the lost into the safety of the shore. Christian harmony equals hope. That is seen, that really is seen by those in the dark. And so what a wonderful opportunity we have together as a church amid all the darkness and division of 2021 society to shine like stars. Friends, will you pray with me that we would do just that? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask and pray that you would help us to work out that salvation that you have graciously given us. Father, we ask and pray that you would help us to work hard out of a godly and holy fear of you and to work hard as wonderfully you work in us. Father, would we be those who hold out the word together as we live in harmony together? Father, help us not to dispute. Father, help us not to grumble. Father, help us to be marked by a patience and a harmony. And may such harmony encourage us all, new Christians and church leaders alike, but most of all, 
would we do it so that we may shine like stars in this world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.